Take your Bibles again and open up to Amos chapter 3. I'm not going to be quite as brave and try to cover two chapters. That was maybe a little much. So, <clears throat> And there's a lot in chapter 3. Excited to bring this uh, to you guys. Let me begin by just reading the first two verses, and then we'll obviously read the rest as we go throughout. Amos prophesying to Israel says, Hear this word which Yahweh has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. If you remember last week, we began with Amos, and there was a roar, Amos 1-2, and he said, Yahweh roars from Zion. And there was a roar against the nations, and here was Israel, no doubt, clapping because of their sins against them. And then, as the roar got closer, they realized it was directed at them, primarily, and so we finished up with the roar of Yahweh being turned against Judah and Israel. And really for the rest of the book, we're going to focus on the judgment that is going to come against Israel. And really what we have in chapter 3 is, is kind of a, a court case where all the pieces are going to be laid out. Uh, there's going to be witnesses. There's going to be an a airtight case brought, and by the end of it, the... Inevitable conclusion will be, they deserve judgment. And so what we're going to do is look at four questions regarding this as we go through it. We're going to jump right into it so that we can make sure and make it out of it. The first question is this, or statement rather, who God judges? Who is it that God judges? In verses 1 and 2. Again, hear the word which Yahweh has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Chapter 3 of Amos opens with another loud roar of judgment, aimed not at the pagan nations, but again at the people of Israel. And there are four facts that the Lord wants us to know about Israel. One, I established, or he wants Israel to know, I established you as a people, a nation. You would not be a nation in existence if it were not for me. Two, I delivered you. You would still be in slavery in Egypt if it were not for me. Three, you are my family. We have a relationship, a close relationship, an intimate relationship. And four, you are quite privileged because you only have I known of all the families, the nations of the earth. I chose you. In other words, God wants them to know I have an extremely legitimate claim on you. You are mine. And all this comes together to make Israel's departure from the Lord even more treacherous and evil. These privileges are being used to set up the just judgment. To leave an acquaintance is one thing, but to leave the family, that is quite another. To betray someone who has loaned you $5, okay, we can forget about that, but someone who has 
delivered you from a life of slavery, well, this is evil. To depart from a man who knows you amongst the thousand others, that is one thing, but to depart from your wife, the one you've chosen to especially dwell with, this is sin. To depart from the Lord is an evil thing for many reasons, but certainly one of the greatest reasons is because to know the Lord is to be a direct recipient of His grace, and thus to depart after knowing Him is to trample on that grace. It is to despise it, to desire something else over it. And not only despise it, but also to shirk the responsibilities that come with that grace. It is a costly grace. There are responsibilities that go with the privileges. And so if you're here today, and you know the Lord, you are privileged, but you need to know and be warned that there are responsibilities with walking with the Lord, and He will hold you accountable to this. Israel had forgotten this. And this situation now warrants their judgment. It will be right, it will be just. They had forgotten the privileges, they had forgotten also the responsibility, and so now the Lord now roars. You have forgotten that you are my family, and we have a special relationship. The word known here, you see it right there in verse 2, is used to describe the intimacy of a husband and a wife above all other relationships. God, yes, He knows all nations. He's sovereign, omniscient, but His relationship with Israel is unique. He knows them. Same sentiment is expressed in Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. I treasure you, treasure the relationship. Now if you think about it, this should be flipped. Why is it that God is treasuring them, the sinner, the rebellion, and they've chosen not to treasure Him? There's nothing to treasure in them, yet God treasures them, and there's everything to treasure in God, and they don't at all. So this is an evil situation. They forgot the responsibilities. If you just take the marriage analogy... Uh, the idea of them knowing the Lord in that way. Four responsibilities of marriage. Uh, faithful love. Israel was supposed to remain faithful in love. Love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. A faithful love forsakes all other loves for the sake of the one they love. Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. That was their responsibility. That was their call. Responsibility two, a submissive love. They were the bride. Israel was called to submit themselves fully to God and His Word that they might serve Him alone. Yahweh your God, Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear and Him alone you shall serve. Responsibility three, Israel was called to stay in a close fellowship with God. They were to walk with Him as Enoch walked with God. They were to have fellowship with Him. Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you? Do justice, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That walk is the idea of fellowship and intimacy. Faithful love, submitted love, companionship kind of love. Also a reproducing love. Israel was intended to be a nation that bore spiritual children for the glory of God. You see this again in Deuteronomy in that same section. 
Deuteronomy 6, 6, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them as doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, every chance you get, you need to be teaching your children so that they might carry the message, reproduce yourself, go make disciples. Again, he says it in Deuteronomy 32. So there are all kinds of privileges to being in God's family. Privilege of God's deliverance. If you're in here and you know God, you've been delivered. The privilege of possessing God's Word. If you're in here and you know God, you possess His Word. You have to know His Word, believe His Word to be saved. The privilege of knowing the God of the Word and having His protection and His wisdom. His love. But also there are responsibilities. And we must not forget this. Now responsibilities get a bad rap, but responsibilities are a great thing. In jail, you have no responsibility because no one can trust you. But outside of jail, responsibility brings freedom. And God desires you to walk in the kind of responsibilities that bring freedom from sin and enslavement to the ultimate master, which is Him. He gives life. And so we cannot forget the responsibilities. And so if God has placed His hand on Israel to bless them and to know them, the question is why? Why has He blessed me? Has He blessed me so that I might grow fat and rich and happy and live it up so that I can use my freedoms for my own pleasure? Is that why He's blessed me? What is the purpose? And one obvious negative answer is that He has not blessed us so that we might sin. That is not why He chose us. The same chapter that we read last week in Romans says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. That is not why He saved you. Rather, present your members as slaves to righteousness and then progress in righteousness. This is why He has called you. Christ did not deliver us so that we might continue in sin, and neither did God deliver Israel so that they might continue in sin. And so, verse 2 reads, we really don't even need any more after that to make the case. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, as a result, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. There is judgment. They had forgotten who they truly were. They began to live like who they weren't. God reminds them with a roar that judgment is coming. And of course, he can do this. He owns them. He knows them. In the same way, if someone else's kids get out of line in the church, I might have kind of a responsibility there to say something, but certainly not the same responsibility as the father of those kids. God has to say something. These were the people that He chose to bring the nations, to bless the nations. They were doing the opposite. Judgment begins with the house of God again. We have that simple fact. We are in a relationship with Him, and He will be faithful to judge and to discipline. And so we've been reminded that God judges even His own when they get out of line. Knowing God is a dangerous thing. And so that's our first question. Who does God judge? Well, in this context, He is judging His own people. Now, when does God judge? 
When is it that God brings judgment? Point two, verses three through eight. Now he's patient, he's long suffering. When does it fall? What we have here are seven rhetorical questions, which maybe at first glance don't seem to be very connected. But as you go through it, let me just tell you, they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. And the more you read it, the more you realize uh, this guy might have been a shepherd, but he was certainly inspired. All of these analogies, rhetorical questions, are drawn from a common human experience. He wants his audience to get it. This is all something that we can relate to. There are sights and sounds, cause and effect, and basically what he's doing He's drawing them into his argument so that he might corner them with his logic. They've got nowhere to go. They condemn themselves. Paul does something similar in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation in love, everybody's saying yes, yes. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, yes. Any affection and compassion, yes. Then fulfill my joy. Walk in love. Maintain that love. Be united in Spirit. Think on one purpose. Are you a Christian, Paul says? Then act like it. And Amos is going to do something similar. So what we have here are causes and effects. Uh, You see the first verse. Do two walk together? There's the effect without having met. Well, that's the cause. It's going to go through that like that. It's all to prove one main principle, namely that for every cause there is an effect. Israel has sinned. That will bring an effect. This is how God has set up the world. And so there's seven. Let's go through them. First, do two men walk together unless they've made an appointment, the LSB says, or ESB agreed to meet? And of course, the obvious answer is no. No. You have friends that you once walked with, shared life with, and the reason was because y'all were in agreement. You agreed to meet. And so then you walked. If you're not walking with them anymore, you're not in agreement anymore. You haven't agreed to walk together. Now the word here is the word not just make an appointment as the LSB, but actually it just means to meet without any overtones of a plan or anything like that. So this could be someone who's walking, bumps into a friend, and then just happens to keep walking. Or this could be someone who makes an appointment and says, let's go walk together. But the point is, they don't start walking together unless they meet. There's a cause, and there is an effect. Now, he's not just playing on the cause and effect thing, he's also using these analogies to point to Israel's sin. This analogy reinforces the obvious truth that Israel's covenant relationship with Yahweh presupposes that they have met and agreed to walk with Him. So why are they not walking with Him? No longer are they in agreement. The second question Amos 3.4, first half. Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Here we have a lion roaring as a warning to those who have transgressed or crossed his boundaries. I've never really been around a lion other than the zoo. You feel quite safe there, but apparently it's kind of a thing where if someone crosses over into their territory, they roar. I'm coming, you better get away, is the idea. So if you hear the roar, the obvious cause is there is a prey that has transgressed the lion's boundaries. You're not in safe territory. You're in grave danger. Yahweh is saying, repent, 
Move back to safe territory. Don't cross the boundaries anymore. Get back in the road of God's Word. And God's roar is not an empty roar. He means it. If you hear it, He means it. This roar is like the roar of God's coming judgment. Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. That's the lion's roar. You have transgressed. Behold, I am coming. It hasn't happened yet, but you need to know I don't make idle threats. It will come. 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, if he did not spare the ancient world, if he brought a flood upon the ungodly, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, having made them an example, then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The roar has happened. If there is no repentance, the Lord knows how to keep you for that day. It is a roar of warning. Many transgressing the boundaries in Israel, and so there is the roar. He's still roaring today. His word sounds out in our own nation, in many churches. It's a roar of warning. He's patient, but it is not an idle threat. There's another roar, though. Look at the third question. Does a young lion give forth its voice from its den unless it has captured something? This is the roar that will take place after the kill. They're enraptured in the process of killing. He's in his den, devouring his prey, and he roars. So we have a roar of warning preceding the kill, and then the roar, the roar that comes after the kill. He's saying, heed the warning. Heed the warning. Matthew 24, 27, Jesus' second coming. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, of Christ. And then, listen to this, right after this event. I mean, lightning is quick. You see the lightning, He's here. There's nowhere to go. It's here. Right after this, we have a cause and effect verse. 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What's that saying? Christ has come back. The vultures are circling in the air. What does that indicate? The lion has roared. And this isn't the first roar. This is the second roar. Judgment has fallen, is what he's saying. So it will be the coming of the Son of Man. His coming will be as immediate as the light will be vultures, and the reason is because the Lion of Judah brought judgment on all who refused to repent. He doesn't warn in vain. Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time. Their foot will stumble, Deuteronomy 32-35. The day of disaster is near, he says. Vengeance is mine, Hebrews 10. I will repay, and then look at this, and again the Lord will judge His people. So now we're not in the Old Testament talking about Israel. We're in the New Testament for those who've been in the church and have His Word and decide to depart, deconstruct, whatever they may say, the Lord will judge. Vengeance is mine. A lion who roars with warning will one day roar over his prey. And the cause of that roaring, 
proud rebellion against the lion. Foolish. Proud. He roars. The rhetorical questions continue. Now this time we have two questions which set forth a trap. Four and five. Name is three five. Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? The idea behind the first question is that calamity does not happen by coincidence. If the trap goes off, no, the hunter has set the trap. In other words, God spreads the net of judgment. And when it goes off, you can know God has justly spread that net that has caught you. Calvin writes, it is he who has spread the net of judgment. And the idea behind the second question here is that God does not set his traps in vain. I mean, a hunter may set his trap and nothing will ever walk on it, but when God sets a trap, well, he will catch his prey. Rest assured, it will go off with something in it. Again, the same point, he does not make idle threats. A lot of idle threats being thrown around in the world today, world leaders making threats. Maybe they're going to make good on it. Maybe they're just posturing. Amos's point is that God is not like that. If he sets the trap, the ungodly will step in it. And by the way, it will be their fault. This hunter has pre-warned his prey. Don't walk there. The trap is there. Once it catches you, you are done for. Go the other direction. This is a gracious hunter. It will be your fault if you step on it and it closes on your foot. It is all your fault. You are walking where you shouldn't have walked. You heard the roar, the warning, the gracious invitation to come to the sun, and you kept walking. In other words, if we step on them, we are the only ones to blame. And then we have two last ones. Amos is painting a picture for us of a city before and after war. Six, Amos 3.6, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? When the trumpet sounds, the people tremble, for they know and believe that a siege is coming. That's right. When the sirens go off, you get scared. So also, Amos meant for the people to tremble at the voice of God, sounding a trumpet of warning. One commentator writes, Now is not the time for gentle correction. The wrath of God has been stirred rightly and justly. Thus, there must be an urgency in the response of the hearer. So this is before the siege. Now after the siege has come, the city lays in waste. So who has done it? Amos 3.6, if calamity happens in a city, has not Yahweh done it? He is the one. He set the trap. He brings the judgment. He roars. He's over the prey. He's the roaring lion. He's the hunter who set the trap. He's the one who laid the city in waste. The city laid to waste in this world may soon find itself rising from its ashes. Many cities have done that over and over again, except for Jericho. I've walked on those ashes. <laughs> it's nothing. It's kind of cool, though, because you can pick up whatever you want there. But when God judges a city, 
the smoke of His judgment will rise forever. The damned will never be able to rebuild it. And as the smoke rises, it will be a testimony that He does not make idle threats. It will also be a testimony of His grace, because at one time He did offer them life. Unless you think that the God of the Old Testament is someone different from the Jesus of the New Testament, I mean, this is harsh. A lion over his prey, blood dripping from his mouth, a city laid to waste. Turn over to Revelation 14 with me. Revelation 14. And all of this, whether you are in Christ or not, ought to stir you. For those who aren't in Christ, the warning is real for those who are. The warning is real to those who aren't. So we have a job to do to proclaim this. Revelation 14, Then I looked, 14.14, And behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Is that? That's Jesus Christ. Having a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the sanctuary, crying with a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. What is it ripe for? Judgment. Then he who sits on the cloud swung his sickle. This is Christ, gentle and lowly, swinging the sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped, judged, devastated, destroyed. Another angel came out of the sanctuary, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has authority over fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who has the sharp sickle, saying, Put in it and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters from the vine, threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside of the city, stomped on. The blood came from the wine press. Up to the horse's bridle, five feet, for a distance of 1,600 stadia, about 200 miles long. Christ is roaring, but this is the second roar. There will not be another one. His prey is here, and His judgment is just. But that day has not yet come. Now is the first roar. The trap is set, but it has not sprung. The lion roars, but he's not over his prey. The trumpet sounds, therefore the people must tremble. Hear the words from the Lion of Judah himself. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now, the trumpet's sounding. The roar is here. Today is the day, not another day. You hear the words. He meant them for us to hear. The warning of judgment comes with the call of salvation. He's just. The judgment has been pronounced, but also He is full of mercy. He warns. He warns. Prophets warn. Isaiah warns. Paul warns. Peter warns. 
throughout history, preachers have warned. Why? Look at verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophet. What is nothing? Right here, it's judgment. He's not going to do this without revealing it to the prophet so that he could tell you. Again, it's the warning shot. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can prophesy? Who can but prophesy? What is Amos saying here? I've heard this word. You may not like it, but who could hear this and not say something is the idea. Now, we are not prophets. We do not have a direct revelation from God, but we do have the revealed word of God, which tells us that judgment is coming. And the same statement in question could be asked to us. The Lord God has spoken in His Word. Who cannot but warn and tell people judgment is coming? Turn to Christ. And why does He send out the call? So that they would repent. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Paul says, 1 Timothy 2.4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is why he warns. Paul goes on to say, this is why I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Who can but prophesy? I have to say this, he says. And so he warns. Again, I cannot warn you of a specific event. You see nations aligning, and I've got no special revelation from the Lord that tells me who's going to invade who. I don't know. Amos had that. That's not how we treat the Word of God anymore. And If anyone ever says they know, run. That is not a preacher. He's a wolf. But we are called to interpret. We are called to bring out principles. Not predictions, but principles. What is a principle? One would be this, that when the Lord's people begin to stray, they are deserving of His discipline and judgment. It is the cause, they're straying, and the effect will be judgment. Galatians 6.5, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he also will reap. That's a timeless truth that can be drawn from the passage, an implication. Another implication would be simply to broaden it a little bit, and to say not only does it refer to an individual person, but also to groups of people, to churches that stray, to nations that stray. God has given our nation the Word of God, free access. We are not persecuted. We will not be killed. Well, I don't know that for sure, but could. But that's not the threat as it is in some countries. We have it free. It has been Proclaimed, people know it, they have the Word of God. Our nation, in many ways, was at least founded with some of these principles in mind. And yet, our nation has very much departed. What does this do? It makes them, our nation, ripe for future judgment. I don't know when, where, who, how, but the principle is true. When you sin, when you transgress, when you depart from the Word of God, especially if you've been privileged to have the Word of God, you are ripe for His judgment. It will be just. For every cause, there is an effect. The foolish man waits for the effect and then looks backwards, but the wise man starts with the cause and then looks 
forward and he sees the warning and he repents. Take Proverbs 16, 18. Here's the principle. You can take this principle and you can take it anywhere and you can see when destruction is coming. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Is a nation proud? Guaranteed promise there will be destruction. So pride reap destruction. This is why when Joe Biden traveled to Tel Aviv this last week in support of Israel, which honestly was kind of a good thing in my mind as far as things Joe Biden could do, but then he opened his mouth and it scared me because this is what he said. Good afternoon. I come to Israel with a single message. You are not alone. You are not alone. Okay, now that's great. Good job. But he keeps talking. And as long as the United States stands and we will stand forever. Uh-oh. That's deep pride. Only God's kingdom stands forever. We will not let you be alone. If I was Israel in that moment, I would think, man, get this guy out of the room before the lightning bolt strikes. Maybe we'll see him on the White House lawn like Nebuchadnezzar, eating grass. Extreme pride. Maybe he doesn't know what he's saying. There will be an effect, and that is destruction. Now that's Joe Biden, but we put him there. Our nation, we're in this nation. We hold some responsibility. God is not mocked for whatever a man or a church or a nation sows, that he will reap. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. The whirlwind is coming. It's inevitable. God never brings judgment without a cause. And so in Israel's day, there was a cause. In our day, there is a cause. There came in their day a judgment, and in our day, there will be a judgment. Now why? Why does God judge? Verses 9 and 10. Why does He judge? Make it heard on the citadels of Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, Gather yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great confusions within her, the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares Yahweh. Those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Here are the nations. This is interesting. God calls the nations to come and see. The sinful nations come and see. I want you to be the witnesses. Why? You know what it's like to walk in sin. So you're going to be able to see it and recognize it. He says, get up on your citadels. Get in the mountains. Look down. What do you see? Great confusion. Because sin brings confusion. Our nation is a confused nation. Not only that, there's oppressions in Israel's midst. In verse 10, they do not know how to do right. What is that? That's Romans 1 language. They've been given over. This is how long they've walked in their rebellion. They now have a debased mind. They don't even know how to do what is right. All they know how to do is what is wrong. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them over to their lust. Verse 25, 
Why? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There's the confusion. Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased, unfit mind to do the things which are not proper. Everything's twisted in a debased nation, in a church that's gone off, in an individual that's gone off, in a nation that's gone off. Everything is in confusion. Everything's backwards, topsy-turvy. They're confused. They think what's wrong is right. That's what they proclaim. And God just simply says, come and see. Anybody with half a mind can see it. This is not true. This is false. God gives them up. And so they hoard up for themselves, it says, violence and devastation. Words to describe complete lawlessness and corruption. Crimes against property and people. And then the Lord turns and He commands the nations. Amos prophesies, verse 13, Hear, testify, nations, He says, against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord Yahweh, the God of hosts. God of hosts, that's warring language. The angels are His host. For on the day that I will punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel, or idols. The horns of the altar will be cut into pieces, and they will fall to the ground. And I will also strike the winter house, together with the summer house, lavish houses everywhere. They had hoarded up for themselves riches. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end. What is this? Greed. Greed. Well, finally, something that America cannot relate to. The case has been made. The witnesses have heard. And they've seen. The great judge has pronounced judgment. Paul writes, therefore, you are without excuse. And that would be the case here. They are without excuse. The only thing that we need to learn now is, what is this judgment going to look like? It could take many forms, sickness, sudden death, famine, storms, flooding, fires, invasion of an enemy nation. Last heading, how God judges. How does God judge? Verse 11. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, an adversary, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you, and your citadels will be plundered. How is God going to judge? He uses the nations. He uses the nations. Every nation, even the evil nations, are like a pawn in the hand of the great sovereign king. And at all times, he is arranging the board. He's crying out, check. He's giving the warnings, but eventually checkmate will come. You won't see it coming. He's always like a thousand moves ahead of us. We may look this way and think, okay, here it is. Uh, Albert Muller just wrote an article all about the new axis of evil that seems to be forming. North Korea and Iran and Russia and China. And he made a good case that perhaps they are forming together because they have a common enemy. They would love to see America and Israel go down. Maybe. Or maybe that's just like a, a chess move and Canada is going to come destroy it. No, probably not Canada, but... But who knows what's going to happen. But the point is, he'll do it. And he will use whatever he's going to use to bring judgment. So the traps are set. 
The lion is roaring. Maybe it's far in the future, or maybe it's tomorrow. And yet, as we look at closing, one thing we need to all consider, as the court case has been made, every single one of us without Christ is guilty. And we stand condemned at the bar of His great throne. The question is, how can we escape? The question for them is, how could they have escaped? They needed to repent and believe in the Word of God. How could we escape this great lion? The lion's son, the lion of Judah. Psalm 2.10 So now, O kings, show insight. Finally, listen, show some wisdom. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, the lion's son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way you hear the second roar. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is no refuge outside of this just judgment except for Jesus Christ. So we have one simple message. We are to be just as passionate about this as Amos. We are to use all of our faculties to bring people to the place of seeing the lion. There he is. And as he roars, he sends his son, the other lion. He's slain for you. The punishment taken, and for any who would turn to Christ. And so we have a devastating message, but also a beautiful message of mercy and grace because all who call out to Him will be saved. So keep always in your mind that judgment is coming, but that today is a day of mercy if they will turn. Pray with me. Father, we thank You, Lord that we are here hearing these words so that we might be warned, so that others might be warned. Father, you do not desire for people to be warned and then flee your wrath, thinking of it as slavery. The only reason they come to you is because they don't want the judgment to fall. But Father, to see the beauty of the fact that you would warn and to see that you were good and you were right and you were righteous and that everything that you call us to is good, it's life-giving, it's blessing. Father, you are warning us from our own destruction and corruption. Father, we pray that you would be kind to our nation, that you would be patient, just as you have been patient. And Father, that you would bring revival that, that that would start in your church, in your house, even in this very room. That tonight, the words that we have heard would not just be routine, something that we forget after tonight's dinner and go on, but something that would stick with us, plant deeply in our heart, change our life, our attitude, our direction, our calling. Father, to have this privilege of being your ambassadors, to know one day in heaven 
that we got to not only warn, but share the very message that brought someone to salvation, there could be no greater joy. Help us to see that day and live for that day, we pray in your name. Amen.